This morning, uh, we are in Ephesians chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles and want to turn there, uh, verses 14 through 21 is our focal text this morning. We're going we're gonna to talk about, well, we're going to kind of build on this idea that sometimes um, what we, we're not always sure when we listen, when we hear, when we read that, that what somebody says and what they mean to say are always the same thing. And sometimes we have to kind of really dig deep to, to get a full grasp of the, of the power of words and, and what, what, is, what is being spoken. And I'm going to challenge us to, to look at something Paul says in these verses that maybe some words that are, that are very familiar to us, but maybe challenges us and to think a little differently about our walk with Christ and our faith. So, let, let me turn right this morning to our scripture. And again, this is the third chapter of Ephesians, and, and we begin at verse 14. I'm going to read 14 through 21. And these are the words of the Lord this morning. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to the power that is at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout the generations forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, with hearts of gratitude, we thank You for Your Word that is read, Your Word that is spoken for Your Holy Spirit that, that speaks into our lives. Lord, give us hearts and minds and ears and spirits that are open to receive your word and bless these moments to your glory. We pray in Christ Jesus. Amen. The, the title of the sermon this morning, Say What?, comes from a, a phrase that has become more common in our household between Tony and I and Ryan and, and Cassidy. And this is the context that often it is spoken. And I, I tend to be the one that, that uses it probably more often because as the kids have gotten older in their education, have they progressed in their education, and, and um, you know, Ryan now in high school and Cassie fast approaching high school, uh, Tony and I have kind of differentiated the parent-slash-tutor roles early in elementary school, Tony did most of the kind of overseeing homework and making sure the kids were staying on top of assignments. But as they've gotten older and their assignments have gotten more complicated, uh, we've had to kind of decide, all right, you're in charge of this and I'm in charge of that. Tony does math. That's her thing. And I'm happy to turn that over. So she, she works with the kids and kind of, because she has to learn it. That's the problem with doing math is the kids get older and algebra and geometry and all these things, I don't remember any of that anyway. So Tony handles that and some of the other subjects and, and helping with quizzes. I do English. That's, that's where I step in. And, and I do 
paper editing. This is a generational thing. This is handed down. This is what dad did for me when I, and my brothers when we were growing up. This is what I do with Ryan and Cassie. And so what that means is that when they have papers due and when they've written, they always sit and they have to write their papers themselves. And once they've done that and they finish their five or six or seven page paper, however long it is, then we sit down together at the computer and we work through it and we read through it and we edit and improve and tighten up and do all the things you do when you're writing for, for a grade. But what inevitably happens in that process is that as you know, we're reading through a paper, say Ryan and I are working through one of his papers and I'll read it out loud as we're going and I will read a sentence that he's written and I will turn to him and say, say what? What does that mean? Uh, because he'll write something that just doesn't communicate what he's wanting to say. He knows what he wants to say, but it didn't come out the way that he wanted to. And we start to work on that. And so say what? Say what? If I was going to be generational, I thought about calling it, um, what you talking about, Willis? You know, that kind of thing. Um, because that happens. And that's not indicative of Ryan. Okay? We all do that. When I write, I have to have people that read what I write. Because... It never fails. I will write something that makes perfect sense in my head that doesn't make sense when somebody else reads it. And, and, or you will read, you won't catch your own errors. Because you ever notice how when we read what we wrote, we read it like we meant to write it. So if the word is of, but we wrote if, we read the word we meant, not the word we wrote. And, and that's the way that, that our, our minds work. And so our, our communication becomes a trick. That's why we have things like white out, and um, you, I, I'm probably, I think I might be, Tony and I might be part of the, the last generation that actually took a typing class in high school on a typewriter. And you remember old school typewriter, where if you made a mistake, you took the white out piece of paper and you stuck it in between the key and the paper to, to erase it. You remember that stuff? I mean, but that's why we have those things, because we need those things. Computers are great. Delete keys are wonderful. They help us, help us clean up things, because sometimes we, we communicate, and all communication goes this way. I, it happens in verbal communication. It happens in sermons. I, I've used an example. Dad and I have talked over the years about preaching, and I remember as a kid hearing him say this, and I understand now what he meant, but that on every Sunday that he would preach, or every Sunday that I preach, there are three sermons preached. Every Sunday there are three sermons. The sermons we write, the sermons we preach, and the sermons we should have preached. <laughs> because it never fails. Every week I will sit down at the end of a Sunday and do a little assessment. I'll go, man, I wish I'd have said that. Or... I'll even be sitting here and going, you know what, I forgot to say something in the second service. Let me make sure I get that in in the third service. You're always self-evaluating because sometimes what you say is not what you mean to say. Sometimes what's in your head doesn't come out. Here's the greatest example of that in my own ministry. The moment I will never, ever, ever forget as a young pastor serving as an associate at St. Paul uh, on a Saturday night contemporary worship service, Tony was pregnant with Ryan at the time. Tony sang in that praise band as well. And we're there and we're worshiping together as we did every Saturday night. About 100 people there. And we're doing prayer. And we're sharing prayer time together. Tony, as I said, was pregnant. I had been sick the week before. And I was very concerned when I'd gotten sick that I would make Tony sick because it's hard enough being pregnant, let alone I didn't want to make her sick on top of that. So my prayer had been, Lord, you know, please don't let Tony get sick. 
Let this not uh, affect her. And it didn't. So we gather on Saturday night, and people are sharing their joys, and they're sharing their praises, and I was really thankful. And I decided I wanted to share my joy and thankfulness to the congregation. So I looked out upon this congregation that I was called to serve and be the minister to, and I said to them, brothers and sisters, I just want to thank God tonight that I did not make my wife pregnant this week. That's what I said. And I'm telling you, there was no recovery for five minutes. There, I lit the room up. I was so red. I mean, and there's nothing you can do. That's not what was in my head. That's not what I was thinking, but that's what came out. And, and so I'm not kidding. I literally, I'll never forget, I, there's a stage behind us. And I literally put the mic down, and I just stood there because it had to work its way out. Everybody had to kind of get the laughter and the, the, the moment behind them. And so I picked up. We finally settled back down. There's a gentleman. Every church has one of these guys or girls, by the name of Calvin Frazier. Good guy. But every, finally settles back down. We're getting serious again. We're in prayer time. And Calvin stands up and says, after finally says, well, I have a joy this week. And he stands up and he says, I want to thank God in this congregation that I didn't make my wife pregnant this week either. <laughs> and boom, we all lost it again. And I was like, thanks. You know? I would love to tell you it's the last time I did something that silly, but it happens all the time. Most of the time, it's not that obvious. But it, inevitably, I, you know, in your speaking, the things, even as, it's, as I'm saying it, I'm realizing one of the most frustrating things is when I know what I want to see, what do I want to say, I know what I want you to hear, and as I'm speaking it, I know I'm not communicating it clearly. It's not coming out. That's terribly frustrating. It happens when we speak. It happens when we write. And so we have moments either in listening or reading where we find ourselves saying, what? I'm not sure I understand this. I'm not sure that the writer, the speaker, is communicating clearly what he or she really means to say because this doesn't fully make sense. And I think Paul has one of those moments, not in what his communication, but in our fully understanding what, he, what he's saying. Because there's a kind of a say what moment in Ephesians chapter 3. Now, before we get to that moment, understand that the bulk of the text, the bulk of what I read this morning, Ephesians 3, 14 through 19, right before we get to verse 20, um, it's a prayer. Paul is speaking a prayer into the life of the church and into the life of those believers in Christ, and I believe even through the power of the Holy Spirit today into our lives. It is a, a powerful prayer. I, mean, I want you to hear just some of the phrases that Paul prays for the church because it starts right there, right there at the very beginning when he says, I kneel before the Father. And this is what he prays for. I pray that you will be strengthened in your inner being by the presence of Christ. That, that the presence of Christ would dwell deeply within you. That you'd understand the power that's at work in your life. And he prays that they would understand how wonderfully and miraculously they are loved. In fact, he says that I pray that you'd understand the length and the width and the height and the depth of the love of God for you to understand how important you are, how valued you are, how much you matter. He's praying for those believers. Understand, you are God's prized possession. And he says that you would 
grow in that knowledge, that you'd be filled with a fullness of God's measure, that God's full potential would be at work and be realized and be experienced in your life. It is a powerful prayer of encouragement and hope. In fact, I, I think we need these kind of prayers in our life. You know, if, if we draw back, if you were here months ago when we did conversations on the front porch and we talked about encouragers and I used Barabbas, uh, or Barnabas, I should say, as an encourager. But, but encouragers are the people in our lives that pray into our lives like this. They're giants in the faith, and every church has them, and we have them. The kind of people who I know, and I am blessed by because I know every day they're praying for me, and they're praying for you, and they're praying for us. Just those kind of giants in the faith. And I, and I love the moments that God gives us to see these kind of blessings take place and see the, the, the character of, of men and women who live this kind of a passionate prayer life. When I and Tony and the kids were assigned uh, to serve at uh, Shady Hills United Methodist Church, the church I served before I came to be your pastor. And it was six or seven years ago when we first went. Uh, so Ryan was about eight, Cassie about six, and um, went there. And I started hearing about this woman in the church who they said it was interesting. Somebody came and said, and I don't know if they were kidding with me or not because it didn't fit her character at all, but the first thing I remember hearing is they said, be careful, she doesn't like young pastors. Well, that's a great way to start. Nothing I can do about that. But, um, but that's what I'd heard about her, and, and, and that was not true at all, at least not in my experience. But I, I remember meeting her for the first time. Her name is Miss Hazel. Miss Hazel is a widow. She's very advanced in years and age, and, and um, the years have, have taken a toll, as they do on everybody. She's a very diminutive woman. She's um, kind of hunched over a little bit. She walks very, very slowly. But I'll never, ever forget one of the first Sundays that we were there. It was after worship, and there's a little fellowship hall outside the sanctuary, and a few of us are gathered out and talking Miss Hazel's there. Ryan and Cassidy had gone out to the playground. While they were out there, Ryan had fallen. He had hurt himself. Nothing that was taking us to the hospital, but, you know, as boys or children are apt to do, it just, he'd, he'd injured something. And he came into the fellowship hall, and he was dirty. And you could see he had tears in his eyes, and he was kind of hobbling a little bit. And, and he was coming, you know, as to his, probably to his mom, you know, as... as as children will do, to, to kind of get some love. And as he came in, he walked by Miss Hazel, who saw that he'd been crying and that he was hurting, and, and she grabbed him. I'll never, ever forget that she grabbed him, and in her diminutive, all five-foot-four of her, just enveloped him, and she started to pray for him. And she prayed God's healing and God's blessing and God's strength right into his life, right then and there. I'm not even sure Ryan fully understood what was going on, but I did. And I saw this woman rise up and just reveal herself as a giant in ways that I would never have seen before. She was one of those kind of people like Paul that prayed blessings into people. And what would happen is people would call the church. I'm, I'm not kidding. People would call the church and they would have needs, and they would ask us to get word to Miss Hazel so she could pray for them. That was the kind of person she was. I tell Miss Hazel so she can pray for us. 
That's who she was. And I saw that in that moment. I would see it in many, many moments that would follow. Uh, A champion for Christ, but for others. And that's what Paul's doing. He's praying into. He's enveloping the church, if you will, not only with his arms, but he's praying that they're enveloped with the love of Christ and the fullness of Christ, that we'd experience that kind of power. And we need those kind of prayers. But it's interesting where that prayer leads. And it leads to the say what moment. And it's words that for some of us are really familiar. We've heard them a lot. But I I want you really, really to hear what Paul says at the end of his prayer as he's coming to the close of his benediction. He says in verse 20, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to the power that is at work within us. You read that and you think, really? I mean, more than we could ask or imagine? He's not saying him who is able to do really incredible things. He's saying to him who, as at work in your life, to the power of the fullness that I've just prayed for you to experience, him who is at work in you is able to do more in you, through you, with you, than you can begin to ask or imagine. And I wonder whether part of that isn't a little bit of a challenge, maybe even a little bit of an indictment upon us. That we've allowed our imagination, our dreams, our vision, our prayers to become very small to become very limited. Paul says the scope of what God can do is greater than what you're even willing to see or able to see. I I wonder if Paul isn't saying to me, to you, to us, God isn't saying, you've stopped dreaming. You've, You've stopped dreaming. You've stopped imagining possibilities beyond your current reality. I mean, realize the scriptures are full of dreamers. The gospels are full of of people with very creative and motivating and convicting imaginations. In Matthew chapter 9, there's a woman who's bleeding for 12 years who imagines that if she can just touch the cloak that Jesus wears, just touch his garment, she's going to be made well. And she is. In the Gospel of Mark, there's a beggar who's blind, who sits by the side of the road, who's just hoping for some generosity from the crowd around him. But he hears about Jesus, and his imagination takes over, and he begins to dream, and he believes that if he can get Jesus' attention, if Jesus will just take note of him, that the touch of this man can restore his vision. But I say to you, he saw far clearer than most of us do. And so he gets obnoxious when Jesus goes by. Go back and read the story. He gets obnoxious and he makes sure, in spite of social protocol, that Jesus knows who's there and he's restored to sight. Dreamers. A man who believes that the word of Jesus can make his child well. And it happens. Or a woman who's a prostitute, who probably has never known the compassion, the selfless compassion and love of a man, 
who believes that if she can crash a party, if she can bust in and again break social protocol, but with her tears and with her oil and with her hair, if she can wash his feet, if she can just kneel and bow before him, that her life will be forever different. And it is because they're dreamers, because they weren't limited in what they saw. Their imaginations ran wild. And I believe Paul says to the church, and Paul says to us, let your imaginations run wild. Stop praying small prayers and dreaming small dreams because God is able to do immeasurably more than you give him credit for. So I wonder why have we sat back? Why have we stopped dreaming? Why have we stopped praying? Why have we stopped imagining? And I think part of it is we've lived life. We've had things we've hoped for, passions we've pursued, dreams we've wished for. We've had things in our life that we've wanted to see happen that haven't. And so we become jaded. Maybe not terribly jaded, but we shrink back. Well, because we've wanted things and we've pursued things and we've hoped for things and they haven't happened the way that we'd wanted them to. And I think Paul would say, challenge us to see bigger and to understand deeper. See, what happens in Christ, you know, th there's a reason that before Paul says this, he goes so deep into being filled with the full power of Jesus, the full presence of God, because, see, something happens when Jesus takes over. Something happens when we submit ourselves to, the li to life in Christ is that our vision begins to, to, to shift a little bit. And we have a tendency, I have a tendency to become very self-centered. I have a tendency that my dreams and my hopes and my passions and my prayers become very much about what I want for me. What Paul reminds us is that when we welcome the presence of Christ, we begin to bend to the will of Christ. We begin to seek not ours, but yours. We begin to seek and ask God to show us dreams and visions and, and to help us to imagine in ways that aren't as self-centered as they often become, and to open us to the will of what God wants to do in our life. And it's not to say that it's inappropriate to ask for things for ourselves and, and our own desires. I think we take everything to God in prayer. But, but Jesus gave us the example of what this kind of prayer looks like. Jesus gave an example of what it means to not only welcome his presence, but to bend to his will, because Jesus did it in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before he was crucified, when he asked God, can we make another way? Can we do this some other way? Because I'm not really looking forward to what's about to happen. And he follows that prayer up with these words. But not my will, your will be done. And so sometimes I think we just don't see big enough. And if we don't see it quickly, or we don't see it in the way that we expected, or the miracle and the answered prayer isn't visible to us, we don't think God's moving. And our vision becomes limited. I was reading recently Joshua chapter 3. Joshua chapter 3 is the account of the Israelites finally stepping into the promised land. Moses has died. Joshua has taken over. They've wandered for 40 years in the desert. And they're about ready to cross the Jordan and take possession of the land God has promised. The problem was they had to get across the Jordan. And at the time of year they were there, the floods had come, the rivers were, were flowing 
hard and fast and high, and it was dangerous. And if you go back and you read Joshua chapter 3, it says that God commanded. Remember, they'd been in this place before. They'd been standing before a body of water that there was a, an obstacle before. And in Exodus, God parts the water. But in Joshua chapter 3, God says through Joshua, tell the, prof, tell the priests to step into the water first. Get your feet wet. Then I'm going to stop the waters. And so they do. And the scriptures say that when they did, God caused the water to, to heap, to pile up in the town of Adam or near the town of Adam. Here's what's interesting. The town of Adam was 20 miles away from where the Israelites were. They didn't see it. God was working upstream. The results became evident, but the miracle was outside their, their line of sight. Sometimes God works upstream in our lives. God works in ways that isn't necessarily always as apparent to us, but it doesn't mean God's not working. It doesn't mean that we can't see it in a different kind of way when we're willing to imagine, to ask, to dream. Here's, I think, the most powerful thing about the words that Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3. These words of courage and hope and trust in God. God who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. You know where Paul was when he wrote that? He was in prison. Paul was in prison. Paul was in prison in Rome. You know what that means? Paul never got out of prison. Rome was where he would give his life for Jesus. Yet even in prison, Paul says, I see a God who does more than we can begin to ask or imagine. It's not always dependent upon our limited knowledge or even our limited circumstances, but a power of God that is at work in far greater ways. I challenge us to dream to imagine, to ask, always in a prayer that says, it's according to your will, Lord. He's able, and God doesn't give us everything we want. And sometimes, that's most of the time, that's to our betterment. But he never tells us to stop dreaming, stop seeing, stop moving, stop believing of what he is able to do. I pray that we would be a congregation of, if I can steal Disney's language, imagineers that see beyond the reality of what's in front of us. See through the eyes of faith and understand that the one who is at fullness within us is the one that works his plan through us and that we'd be instruments of that plan. See, see, and ask through the eyes of faith. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, that we would, oh, I don't know, see differently, believe differently, Imagine differently the power of Christ that is at work within us. That we'd not limit or be limited by our reality, but rather by the possibilities of what Christ can and will do in and through us. I pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.